Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the 2020 season of the POMAP's Middle East Books podcast. Uh, with us today is May Darwish of Birmingham University and author of the new book, Threats and Alliances in the Middle East, Saudi and Syrian Policies in a Turbulent Region, which was just published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, May, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about the book? What, what, what do you see as the main contributions and what were you trying to achieve uh, with the book? So as the title mentioned, it's mainly about looking at threat perceptions and the alliances of Arab states in particular in the region. And the book focuses on how threat perceptions for some states led to particular alliance decisions. And the book looks at some historical cases, but also some more uh, recent cases. So it looks at the Iran-Iraq War from 1980 until 1988, and the Lebanon War 2006, and the Gaza War of 2009. And across these cases, there is a comparison between Saudi and Syrian threat perceptions and alliance decisions during these uh, wars. And the book, in particular, is not as much interested in um, everything about alliances, but in particular, it's looking at how identity and power interplays in shaping threat perception. So why in some cases we see identity as more threatening and ideational threats are more prominent in the alliance decisions, and in other cases, the material power is more uh, important in shaping alliance decisions. So the book is mainly talking about this kind of puzzle and its contribution is kind of moving beyond the either or ideational or material power and trying to make sense of how both shape alliance decisions. So give us an example of uh, an alliance decision which was really puzzling that, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of led you to want to develop this theory. I mean, I think it was at the time and especially during the Lebanon War 2006 and at the time I was an undergraduate student at Cairo University uh, when the war happened and I was in Egypt and for me it was very puzzling looking at the Egyptian media and hearing how Hezbollah is a major threat and you would listen at the radio or TV or statements by politicians and you would think that Hezbollah is attacking Egypt the following day. Um, and for me that was very, very strange because after all Hezbollah is a non-state actor confined to the Lebanese politics and yet states like Egypt or Saudi Arabia or even Jordan, they seemed more threatened by Hezbollah's act rather than by Israel. And that for me was the beginning of my interest into these kind mm -hmm. of questions. And then I looked more into some case studies, historical case studies, especially the Iran-Iraq war was very uh, important because it showed this kind of dynamics at the extreme. So Saddam Hussein, military power rising of Iraq after especially 1975, and the Iranian revolution that weakened the Iranian regime militarily, but also led to this rise of ideology that was particularly threatening to many Arab regimes. And in a way, Saudi Arabia was much more threatened by this message coming from Iran, Whereas Syria, a pan-Arab Ba'athist regime who was supposed to also be threatened by this kind of Islamic uh, message was more threatened by Saddam Hussein. And from that kind of case, it became very clear, well, states actually perceive these threats very differently. And 
some state might be vulnerable based on identity and other based on material power. So take that case of Syria and its decision to align with Iran instead of, instead of Iraq. So, so how, how would you explain that then? So in that case, the Syrian regime um, had a very, uh, let's say, a very difficult position because there was Israel as well that was also a major threat and a major kind of enemy at the time. And the balance of power was not in the favor of the Syrian regime, especially that Egypt withdrew from the conflict after the peace treaty uh, in 1979. And at the very same time, Iraq was having these kind of military ambitions to increase its military power, become a regional power in the Middle East. And Syria was very, very threatened by these Iraqi ambitions, but also realized that they're not going to be able to balance mm -hmm. against Israel. So from that perspective, they were overwhelmed by this kind of imbalance uh, at the military level, and they realized, well, we need to balance, we need to ally in order to kind of create some sort of balance in the region. And their identity, the pan-Arab identity, allowed this to happen because the pan-Arab identity in the Syrian regime was able to, um, to absorb that kind of change. So pan-Arabism is not about ethnicity anymore, it's rather about balancing Israel, it's rather about the other, who the other is. And therefore, the identity could absorb. So from that perspective, the threat to the identity was not particularly um, important in that instance because the identity was flexible enough to absorb that. Whereas the balance of power was very clear that Syria has no option but to find another ally against Israel. I mean, what's interesting is that it falls very much in the tradition of uh, Malcolm Kerr and yeah. uh, the old days of the Arab Cold War, because it, kind of a, a more simplistic approach to identity might have expected that the, the Baathist identity of Syria exactly. and Iraq yeah. would have led them to align. So, so why didn't it? And I mean, that's the second part of the argument of the book, that identity similarity led to divergence, led to threat perception, and it was more obvious in the case of Saudi Arabia, because whereas Syria was in that kind of position of adapting, reframing, and um, having these identity narratives to absorb these changes, Saudi identity was rather an identity based on religion, on Islam, with a lack of a national dimension as well, did not really give the Saudi decision makers this kind of flexibility and this kind of maneuver when it comes to identity. So any identity coming to threaten the, let's say, the pillars of their national cohesion, like Islam or the legitimacy of Al Saud, became more threatening than any other uh, balance of power, because for them, it's about the survival, it's about who we are, and if we don't know that, there is no other. And at the same time, there were lacking other sources for identity. So whereas Syria was able to reframe this kind of Baathist identity, the Saudis were not able to reframe that. It's all about Islam, and there is no other source of identity that they could engage with in order to reframe that. So in that sense, this identity similarity created some sort of questionings about who we are in Saudi Arabia. The fact that the Islamic revolution emerged with this Islamic identity, that we're supporting all Muslims across 
the word also threatened the Saudi question of who we are in the region, what is our role. So we would have expected that, yes, an Islamic identity here, an Islamic identity there is going to lead to an alliance, but in some cases, like in the Ba'athist in Syria or in the case of this Islamic identity, in the case of Saudi Arabia, it created this ontological insecurity. And that's where the book brings in the concept of ontological security to show that there is a security about the self that often shapes how actors perceive threats. And it's interesting because this, again, it, it kind of cuts against the, the other identity argument which people have made, which is that it was really about the, like the Shia population yeah. of Saudi Arabia, the mm -hmm. kind of Greg Gauze's argument, mm -hmm. that the, the fear that it would spread through, through yeah. Shia populations, whereas you read it quite differently. I read it quite differently. I see these sectarian narratives as defensive mechanisms that the Saudi kingdom had to use in order to re-establish their ontological security. And mainly the, the insecurity of the identity came from the lack of difference and the lack of distinction, that we're very, we became very similar to the other. So what makes us different? What makes us a unique actor in this region? And therefore, in order to draw these differences and make these differences even more obvious, they, they found this kind of security in sectarianism. And therefore, every time, okay, there she is, we're Sunnis. And that became the way of saying we are actually different. We are offering something more legitimate. That's who we are. And we're not them. They're just the other. And in a way, this defensive mechanism became throughout the Iran-Iraq war very prominent in Saudi literature, in um, the writings of the ulamas and in TVs. And you could see that it also waned down after the war mm -hmm. and then started peaking up again after 2003, 2006. And then in a way, and that's where the case of Hamas of 2009 became very important because Hamas is not a Shia. And then it became even a more important challenge for Saudi Arabia. Okay, how are we going to draw this kind of difference with Hamas, which is a Sunni group, a Palestinian group? How are we going to... It was very easy for them during the Iran-Iraq war or with Hezbollah to say it's a Shia difference. But with Hamas, and that's where this third case study was very important to show, well, Hamas actually constituted an even more important and more challenging mm -hmm. um, actor and threat for the Saudi kingdom. And the same analysis could extend to show, for example, why the Saudi kingdom was very threatened by the rise of the Muslim brothers um, in Egypt in 2012, because again, they are offering a very, very similar discourse and a very similar definition of the identity. So yeah, so would you fast forward to that then, to the Saudi policy towards Hezbollah in 2006 or, mm -hmm. or uh, to, to Hamas in 2009. So how do they differ then? Um, I mean, so what, what, what does Saudi Arabia do in each of those cases, which uh, you find puzzling? I mean, in both cases, uh, with the Iran-Iraq war, we could make the, or a realist would make the argument, well, Iran military power was declining, but it's, um, it's a temporary decline because 
Iran is a big state with resources and with capabilities, so over time we, we, we could still consider it a regional threat. Um, but with the case of Hezbollah, it's a non-state actor, and uh, at the time, in 2006, it was very clear that Hezbollah had no interest in being involved in any regional politics beyond Lebanon. And um, it's all discourse and it's all identity has been about the Israeli side of the conflict, and that's what they were focusing on. And therefore, it became very clear that Hezbollah does not constitute any material threat to the Saudi kingdom in that regard. The same case for Hamas, which is also a group very confined to the Arab-Israeli conflict, or rather the Palestinian side of the conflict, and there was zero threat for the material security of the kingdom. And there, there it became very clear that identity is the main driver behind threat perception. So how then does, does the Israel-Palestine factor come to decline? In, in, in Saudi thinking about threat and identity, um, especially in the case of Hamas. It, 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 that's where you have this real, it's very interesting questions about how the issue of Palestine was once very central to identity and then it seems to become less so. Yeah. Um, in the book, and I think this is also my kind of personal take and personal reading of uh, these events, it's mainly about the fact that the Palestinian cause has been an Arab cause during the pan-Arab moment. And then when pan-Arabism was discredited, Saudi Arabia kind of framed this in an Islamic perspective. Uh, Iran, after the revolution, the first thing Khomeini started talking about is the Palestinian cause. So it seemed, again, this similarity is very, very threatening for the Saudi kingdom because that's, way, way, that's how they frame their own identity. That's how they frame their role in the region, their relationship with the others. And once this became appropriated by other actors, they were like, okay, so what do we do here? Who we are? How we do things differently? And that's, that's how it started. You know, this Palestinian cause became rather a challenge uh, instead of a cause for uh, le legitimacy in the Saudi narrative. Afterwards, Hamas in particular started realizing, okay, they relied on Saudi money for a very long time, on Saudi support for a very long time, but afterwards they realized, okay, we have to diversify our resources, our existence in the region, and to an extent that was not very easy for Saudi Arabia to accept. And that's how also it became another challenge that Hamas is not really following our lead. They're not following the decisions that the Saudis are making. And it became very clear, especially in 2008, when Saudi Arabia started mediating between Fatah and Hamas. And Hamas, in a way, kind of did not give the Saudi the respect that they expected. So in a way, all of these issues contributed to this Saudi feeling that we're not, our identity is not stable anymore, it's not associated with this issue, other actors are also trying to appropriate that, but also the behavior of Hamas itself also kind of fed into this feeling of threats. So if you look around the region today, uh, there's so many like interesting and puzzling shifts in alliance politics, 
the from you know the Saudi uh, Qatari dispute, yeah. um, you know the shifting alliances inside of Syria, the rise of Turkish interventionism. Mm -hmm. So the theory that you develop in the book, mm -hmm. you know, what do you think? What would you say is the most useful thing from your book, which would help us to understand this tapestry of new alliances and conflicts? Well. Definitely the book does not claim to understand all the alliance <laughs> dynamics because I don't think any book can claim to do that. Uh, but I think the book, what it's really trying to focus on is how these dynamics of material ideationals are interplaying. So you mentioned, for example, the case of Qatar. Qatar is a case where, again, it does not really constitute any material threat to the Saudi kingdom but rather it's a difference over how to, who's leading the region, who we are, it's about the roles uh, that are associated with these identities. And to an extent, the framework of ontological security could be very useful to explore, for example, this animosity and how it emerged and why Saudi Arabia was very threatened by the Qatar case. Whereas, for example, it was not really threatened by the UAE or Kuwait, even though they are also trying to find their place in the region. So, in a way, this framework could explain some of these cases. It could explain the Saudi feel of threat against ISIS, the Islamic State in particular. So that's also another case where the Saudi felt, okay, there is a challenge to how we define ourselves in the region, but also our image in the world and all of that. And also Yemen, even. So related to this ontological security, there is also another dynamic that's related to identity, which is recognition, that we're about to define our identity, but we also want this kind of identity to be recognized by others. And if others don't recognize it, we can take aggressive measures. So there are some of these dynamics related to identity, symbolism around identity, the recognition, all of that is related to the concept of ontological security. And then we can explain in some cases how, for example, the material threat was not present, but there was still a balancing that existed. Also other cases where the identities of the actors had to be reframed to follow the material kind of needs. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, we find many groups in Syria, but also the Assad regime, trying to reframe and reframe the identity over and over again and come up with new ways of defining the self and defining the other based on the needs to survive physically. So if you had a case like, for example, Turkey, mm -hmm. uh, even though they have much greater material power than Qatar, you might expect them to Saudi Arabia to find it easier to reconcile with Turkey than yeah. with Qatar. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, again, because Qatar looks much more similar to Saudi mm -hmm. Arabia in its identity and its heavy framing of who they are, what they are pledging in the region more than Turkey. It's very easy for Arab people or the Saudi people to see how they're very different from Turkish people because of language, mm -hmm. ethnicity. Mm -hmm. So there are definitely several markers to define the difference. But when it comes to Qatar, the differences yeah. are very minimal. So if, if, you, if you kind of take this and then take a step back, um, do you see that this has changed over time then? Uh, you know, as you were looking at this in the 1980s, it was a very distinctive period. 
in kind of broader Middle Eastern history, um, and you and you take the book all the way up until uh, you know the two thousands. Um, what's changed over time in terms of how identity matters and how it plays into these alliance decisions and threat perceptions? I think there are a couple of um, new things and I think trends that we could see over time. Uh, we used to talk about regime security and the lack of national identity and to an extent that Arab states are weak states and over time they're developing this. So I think the book also by looking at the three cases, uh, it became very, um, very obvious, for example, that the choices that Syria made over time during the Iran-Iraq war by reframing its identity that were, in a way, it's not Arabism, it's not just about this Arab identity, it's rather about Israel, it's about the political choices that Syria has to do rather than about the language or... Um, that in itself, over time, we could see that the Syrian identity has changed based on that. So based on that change, we moved from Ba'athism and Pan-Arabism more to being Syrian mm -hmm. as an important national identity, but also being against Israel is also one of the most important pillars of the Syrian identity. The same thing for Saudi Arabia, we could see that the choices that Saudi Arabia had made over time also affected its national identity over time. So at the beginning in the 1950s or 60s, we're talking about pan-Islamism in order to count pan-Arabism. Mm -hmm. And now we're talking 1980s, we were talking about sectarianism, Sunni against Shia. And now with the rise of the Muslim Brothers and ISIS, we're more talking a bit about a strict Salafi identity, a true Salafi identity against all other Sunni groups. Mm -hmm. So in a way, its identity has narrowed down over time, and now they are rediscovering, okay, how are we going to do this? And if you follow a little bit in Saudi Arabia, there is so much about exploring our heritage, exploring our history, looking more about, you know, what is really the, the Saudi identity is about. So in a way, this narrowing of identity over time led to challenges as well, that, you know, if we narrow too much... <laughs> There will be a problem because it's not going to resonate. And then it's about exploring the other sources. So over time, the book also gives an idea of how these processes of, of identity change. And they are, very, um, they are very slow in that change. But over time, we could see that this interaction between material and identity, it's shaping both. It's shaping how the identity is developing over time, but also the alliance choices made based on threats to identity also shapes how actors evolve and how their role evolve in the region. Well, great, thanks. Uh, we've been speaking with Amade Darwish at Birmingham University uh, about her new book, Threats and Alliances in the Middle East. Um, May, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.